0: Good evening,
1: Oliver. Good evening. Ante.
0: Man. Hey, you know what I was thinking, you know, in the past when we used to meet uh, in the mornings, we always would have our cup of tea.
1: Actually, episodes. I have mine. You do, yes, you have I have one. mine. I have mine. Yeah, yeah. wonderful. <laughs> okay.
0: Do you still have your ginger turmeric? In fact,
1: that's what I'm having in here. Yeah, yeah, right. I have the same thing, <laughs>
0: ginger turmeric with some chamomile and some, oh, wonderful. So we are uh, ready to, to rock and roll here. That's okay. Right. So how, how was your week? Let's just touch base a little bit. I haven't seen you at all in this new year. I don't think I've seen you actually since since Christmas or even before right yeah. we didn't stumble into no, each no. other so I mean I mean again this is just again for me such a great great privilege to see you otherwise I would not at all talk to you yeah. So what's going on? Any news, new things? And I wish week? you would
1: not have asked this. I'm really, I'm really tired. I'm, I'm very, very tired. It's the beginning of the semester here. I'm yes. teaching a full load, but we also have our new colleague here. I'm really excited to have Daniel Olario with us. He did his PhD yes. with uh, Emmanuel Toff, one of the top scholars on textual criticism that our own denomination can offer. Expert on uh, Daniel and Septuagint studies. So I'm really excited to have him. But it also means, you know, he's new. He doesn't know the U.S. He No regulations, social security, insurances, banking accounts, cars, housing. So I have spent a lot of time with him learning up, you know, the Moodle types of learning management system that we're using here at Andrews. So I have spent a lot of time. I just actually, you know, got off the parking lot because the car wouldn't start. Uh, We have two cars and we gave him one of our cars and the car didn't stop. So we need to pull the car over to the garage. And so it has been a crazy week I'm I'm really looking forward to the weekend and hope to recuperate and then start the next week with a little bit more energy. But uh, yeah, that that's my short report on my energy levels at least. And you're off, right? You're off teaching this semester.
0: This is my non-teaching research semester. Yes, obviously, as you know, as a chair, I'm not able to extricate myself from duties, a department chair. Mm-hmm. So there's always things to do, but there is a little bit more time for sure and it just so happens to be the case that I <laughs> to connect with your, your experience I just finished reading this week a book by William Irvin or Irvine the Stoic Challenge. And he talks about how the Stoics were approaching these setbacks in yeah. life, you know, seeing them almost as oh, wonderful opportunities, looking forward to them. And so and see, he talks about, and he had such a great insight, William Irvine talked talk, talk about this. And he said, you know, the, the, the greatest, for instance, when you make a resolution, let's say you want to be physically fit, yeah. or you want to have do this, or you want to do that. The most important thing actually isn't the outcome. It is the fact that any significant goal, right? Any significant goal, you're fixing your house, you whatever, will bring you to challenges. Mm -hmm. And that's why these goals are important, because they bring you to challenges, because it is in those challenges that our character and fortitude is being forged. So Pity is the man who has an easy life, who doesn't have these setbacks and tests and challenges. And it was such a fascinating thing. And he, he kind of imagines these kind of stoic gods, yeah, yeah. you know. The moment you think things are going well, they, they throw in a wrench, right. you know, in, in your wheel and something's happening. And rather than bemoaning it, oh, how wonderful an opportunity this is. So I commend to you <laughs> this lovely stoic <laughs> attitude as you're facing the situation with your car and yeah. everything. Anyway, that, that was my end. But but but, but let me put a
1: critical uh, note here on this. I I think all all what you have said is true. Definitely t- for my life and your advice as well. I I, I will take your advice serious uh, and and I I cherish it. Uh, it was truly, tongue in cheek, a little bit um, of course. But but, but yeah. at the same yeah. time, you know this the stoic wisdom. And we have had a little conversation on this too in the past. in One of the episodes. I I also. To have a, a critical hmm. a, a, a critical attitude to what the stoic ideas because they really only contain wisdom for a certain type of elite if if your life is nothing but the life of a slave of somebody who is surviving in the as a mercenary in some auxiliary troops of of the romans there's always a sword being thrown into your legs that that's the normal state of affairs and i think it's only for those where like in luxury positions like like we are where we have a stable income where we have a family where we have loved ones that's i think where the stoic wisdom is really coming to its fore and it should really be cherished but it's not a voice i think that that is necessarily uplifting for for the peasants, in even in, in, in Roman society. Richard David Precht, uh, I, I once listened to, to a lecture he did also on the Stoics, and in, he has a similar observation that sometimes the Stoics, at least back in the days, have um, become such an important voice because they allowed the status quo to continue. Uh, but I mean, again, w- your critique is okay, well but taken, me, because of it does apply to me. And, and it's yeah, wisdom. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I,
0: but, yeah, well, I don't want to have an episode on that, but if I can just slightly push yeah. back, obviously there is a limitation from a Christian perspective. We would certainly interrogate their understanding of wisdom and where do we draw our resources from. Certainly they don't have a conception of sin and and these cosmic powers True. Absolutely, that, that's true. But I, I would say that, on, on the other hand, the question is like, like what is the option, right? I mean, what is the option? Let's say you are denied certain privileges in life and you've been victimized in very different ways. Short of profoundly changing your life circumstances, what can you actually do, yeah. right? So, so what is the alternative? Is it a spirit of moaning and resignation and unhappiness? Or is it, uh, in some ways, trying to find within the space that's being allocated to you, some meaning, mm-hmm. and yeah, it's true that Seneca was absolutely completely rich, but Epictetus was mm-hmm. not, and many followers of Epictetus were were not rich people. So that's that's the only thing that I would uh, perhaps uh, say. And I mean, more could be could be discussed on this, yeah, but yeah, that yeah. perhaps for uh, for sure. another for another time. Sure. Yeah. But in any case, we we have a great topic today, and it is. One of my, well, I don't know if favorite Bible stories is the right word because it is a very very tragic Bible story, but it is favorite of mine because it allows for so many levels of interpretation and application. Mm -hmm. And that is the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4. So let me a little bit just set the stage here or lay out the table before I ask you a question. You know, as I was thinking about it as you have already mentioned in our I think when you first shared a little bit your presentation on that topic in the church recently that you visited, that your presentation pushed a little bit back against a certain reception history of that story, certain theological, literary, philosophical interpretations of what is actually going on in that event. And I kept thinking about it because you're right, there is a long reception history. I was thinking, for instance, I'm thinking, for instance, right now of of Dante's Inferno, and he places him square down. I mean, he places him down in the ninth circle of the inferno, mm-hmm. which is reserved for the very, very worst people. You know, including you know Judas and and Lucifer and Cain is there because for him, for Dante, what Cain did was the epitome of human depravity and evil, and that is the breaking of filial bonds and mm-hmm. and, and destroying something that is nearest to you. As a matter of fact, some time ago, I read a book by Russell Jacoby called Bloodlust, and he writes about the fact how really the the story of Cain and Abel really illuminates the essence of, of human existence and violence, by which he means to say that we usually do not kill and violate the other. This is kind mm-hmm. of a common idea, right? We violate those who are mm-hmm. others. No, 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 no. We violate those who are closest mm-hmm. to us. And that is why the greatest danger that comes from, you know, uh, to women in our society is from their boyfriends and their mm-hmm. husbands. That's the greatest danger. It's those that are closest uh, to us. And, and so it's someone who has been very much interested in the question of violence. And for me, just a staggering, which I wrote recently in this article in the Lake. Union Herald, that, you know, you have the fall of Adam and Eve, the picking of the fruit. Yeah, this kind of punishment from Eden and boom, like immediately murder, like this exponential increase. And then it ends up with Lamech and the end of chapter four, which shows us that violence is at the core of the human condition. Like it is the essence of what human life is all about. And so, and so forth. So I'm bringing all of this myself. To the table. And now I need to put it at the feet of your feet, Oliver, as an exegete. And if you can begin to tell us what are some of the more salient or more prominent ways in which the reception history, meaning the theological, spiritual, philosophical interpretations of, these stories, of this story have gone awry. Perhaps mm-hmm. you can mm-hmm. slowly begin to unpack yeah. that.
1: Oh, yeah. I, I'd love to. Perhaps... As an introduction, to just clarify, I think a biblical scholar, at least from an academic perspective, is not somebody who tells you what the truth is, right? Uh, A biblical scholar basically tries to make um, appropriations and then develop probabilities of interpretations that seem to fit better to the source, whatever you, you are taking as the basis of your interpretation. So right, right. I think at the end, end of this conversation, we, we do not necessarily arrive at this is the correct reading. So, But uh, this is also part of the nature of these biblical texts is that they do stimulate Discussion They do stimulate a community to wrestle with these texts and continuously find mm-hmm, mm-hmm. ways that do justice to, to these texts. And because these texts are often so multivalent, they do, it's almost as if it's intended. they Now when you say multivalent, what do you um, mean by they, that? They allow for different readings. They allow for different interpretations and okay. be coherent still. That okay. it's almost by design, that's how it feels. But I mean, we had, I think, a conversation about this also in the past, particularly when you compare that, for example, to the Homeric epics where things are clear there's not too much of interpretational Mm -hmm. bandwidth possible in the the bible it is so and i think that's the reason also why the reception so there's
0: no single there's no single meaning that's what you want to say at least not uh,
1: in, in in many of those of those epic narratives uh, okay. for, for sure. Yeah. I mean, think about uh, the Akeda or the, the sacrifice of Isaac. I mean, until now, we struggle with interpreting this, yes. this text. Uh, and you yes. recently, I think, two two years ago, so you had a big dissertation, actually, uh, excellent dissertation being we done did. and defended yes. on mm-hmm. that topic. Uh, but it will also not be the last word, right? Uh, we will continue. And so, Kainan Abel, that story, I, I think, is an excellent example that shows basically by looking at the reception history, that means. At how people, as how communities, have received this text, it shows us also what biases are operating in the mind of readers, in our minds, in our cultures. So that perhaps just, just as an introduction uh, uh, to this. Um, but to your question what type of avenues have been taken in the reading and interpretation of Cain that is that can be traced not earlier than about 100 before Christ so because before that we don't really have literature about the interpretation of these texts mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so the early manuscripts Qumran and then definitely the tar- Targums the the Targum is is basically a jew a jewish translations a renderings of The Hebrew text, uh, imagine that the Jews in uh, exile and then definitely in the time of Jesus, they didn't know Hebrew anymore except the the scholars. So most of them spoke Greek. That's why we needed the Greek Old Testament. It was not a product of Christianity, but a product of Jews because Jews just couldn't read. So even Jesus most likely spoke dominantly Greek and uh, then as a as a slang so so to say in local in territories Aramaic was being spoken and Targum is basically an Aramaic translation of Hebrew text but it is an annotate. it's like a commentary it's almost like a little commentary
0: so in other words let me just because for some people some people might find might find this very kind of interesting you were saying that a lot of people in Judea during the time of Jesus actually understood
1: Greek yes i mean probably most of them yeah, uh, mm-hmm. And it was the, It was not just the lingua franca for the educated, but also for the people on the street, um, if you want to do mm-hmm. merchandising. And so Greek was, was the language. So anyways, these targums, you have different targomims, different targums, so to say, different little commentaries on Old Testament text, And those targums are all dated at around the year 0, 100 after Christ, many, many um, appear after the fall of Jerusalem 70 um, AD and and so that's really our first substantial Reception that we can trace. And when you read the Targums, they are not unified always in their reading. Obviously, we, we just clarified that these texts are somehow multivalent or, or have uh, um, potential different interpretations. Their kind is portrayed in different ways depending on the Targum. So you have, for example, um, the, I mean, the text does, the biblical text does not give us a lot of information about kind. For example, how old is he? Is he married? How old is his brother? Is his brother younger? Is his brother older? And how was their childhood? You know? Um how did they grow up? Did they have the same friends? Were they married? Did they have children? All these types of questions are not being answered. They they might be our questions, but they are not the questions that are driving this biblical hebrew text and so the targums they invent stories around this so some targum for example say that Cain um, is actually he's so evil so he cannot really be the son of adam and eve so mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. must be when adam knew eve you know that's how in uh, chapter four was one it starts now adam knew eve his wife um and usually it's read as they had intercourse right and and then uh, eve got pregnant. Is it the word Yadah? It's the word Yadah, right, to know. Mm -hmm. And it's a legitimate Mm -hmm. way of reading it like this. Um, It is the term that is being used in the Hebrew Bible for intercourse, to know a woman when a man Mm -hmm. knows a a woman. But that one of the Targums would say, actually, Adam, this is not intercourse. This is Adam knows something about Eve. What is that something that Adam knew about Eve? And here comes then, so to say, imported background information that's not in the original text, namely that Eve had intercourse with the serpent. So and its <laughs> Kain is basically a half devilish son. So he, he he's a demon himself because otherwise you cannot explain why he's such a bad person, right? And that, that that's one, for example, reason. Uh, one, one reading. And you're
0: saying this is this is found in some of the in some of the targums yeah. Um, okay.
1: uh, this is Targum ne- Neophili um, th- that has that portrayed. Or then you have the idea that Kain and Abel had siblings, in fact, twin sisters, and Abel did not treat the twin sister of Abel nicely was already, so to say from early on, a, Cain was a problematic figure. He didn't play nicely with, the, with his siblings, definitely with the twin sisters of his brother. You know, when twin sisters of his brothers indicates already they are not having the same parent. So they, they invent already these prehistories because you need to explain why is Cain so evil? And so yeah. Okay,
0: so let me just say, so this, these are not just unnecessary embellishments, just uh, kind of inventing some sort of fantasy about the story. They're using these additional elements to make sense of who Cain is and what he did basically
1: or for example you know Cain is the farmer and Abel is the shepherd so there must be a reason why Cain is evil and so some Targums for example Onkelos they will argue that Cain is bad because he's a tiller of soil because Noah was also a man of the soul, and Uziah was also a man of the soul, and uh, you know Noah became a drunkard, and Uziah a leopard, and and therefore Cain is becoming a murderer. So they are trying to invent reasons why Cain is so evil. Um,
0: now, don't we have this little bit like something like this in our faith community that
1: makes this decision? Sure, sure, yeah,
0: yeah. right. That he was didn't he didn't bring the best offerings, and he was. All of that but you will get exactly, yeah,
1: okay. yeah. Or you know, you have Genesis Rabbah. There, there, the issue is that in the let's say, which words is it where it says at the end? I think the ESV translates at the end of days or after time has passed, something like that. In the course of time, that's how the ESV translated in verse 3, in the course of time, Kain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Something must be wrong here. There already something is going wrong. So then other Jewish sources, they assume, well, actually, what happened is that this is the 14th Nisan of Passover, where you have to bring the Passover lamb. And he should have brought a Passover lamb, and he didn't. So it was basically blasphemy that that he did. Yeah, so you see, people invent backstories to. Ex- so they're reading Exodus into Genesis. Right, in exactly, a way. exactly, exactly. Yeah, hmm. um, because because you need to explain the evilness of of this to me it's sometimes it sometimes reminds me about the discussions that we have uh, in the 20th century about how could neo national uh, how could nationalism take such an evil turn right um so there must be, there must we must find something in the psychic constellation of hitler that made him such a demon and so we invent kind of potential hypotheses right that, that uh, could explain this evil that took place um
0: do you, th- you think partially, Oliver? This is because the unexplained frightens yeah. us. You know, very often when we see in others doing something and we can't say why they did it, we feel safe from that. Yeah. As long as I, as I don't do that, I am safe. Right. I think it's partially that's the motivation. Yeah, I think
1: I think that's what it is. Yeah. Um, so as an exegete or as a biblical scholar, now I'm interested in what is actually in the text, right? Um, uh, how ca- can we sift? what is invented by the reception history, by interpreters, by communities of faith, and what is actually happening in the text. And does the actual text allow for such readings? Um, so that, that's always an interesting um exercise to do and it often brings in insights into not just our own how do you say behaviors of reading and our behaviors and of interpreting the, the world in our attempts to make sense so, so to say of evil or of good uh, but it also often gives insights into the cosmos of the actual text And what the potential problem is that the text wants to bring to the fore, which might be a problem that's quite different to what we wanted to read into the text. Um, So, yeah, if you you wouldn't, if if you would allow me, I I will just give you some some hints. So where I think the text is actually leading us to. um, Okay.
0: before you go there, let me just ask you a question, because obviously you're part of a faith community that has its own reception history. Mm -hmm. And some of this reception history, it's also considered to be inspired or it's part of a tradition of interpretation. How do you, before you go into the text, are you as a biblical scholar able to bracket all of that out so that your reading is not driven by this apologetic intent where I now have to find in the text something that mm-hmm. aligns with this reception history, which is sometimes almost like a sacred cow or considered, I don't mean yeah, in, yeah, yeah, in a pejorative right. sense, but yeah. in, in, a, in a kind of a traditional interpretation, how do you deal with those kind of pressures as you read
1: the yeah. text? Yeah, so I, it's it's difficult to, to read a text without a bias, right? Um, so th- therefore, I think, where biases fall or where biases are being objectified, that means where you become aware of your own bias. That's usually happening at the moment where you read other interpretations, right? Interpretations that are so different to your own interpretation. And if you read these interpretations, they actually make sense. And at that moment you wonder, hey wait, why why am I was I so convinced of my own interpretation of this? If there's an alternative way of reading it with good arguments. Actually, you know, the last two weeks I was reading a commentary one of the greatest commentaries, I, I think, on the Book of Jeremiah, just released by uh, Sharp, uh, Carol Sharp, Carolyn Sharp. Uh, she is one of the leading Jeremiah scholars at Harvard. Um, she has published several books and articles on on the topic, and she takes a feminist, anti-colonial, a queer reading of the book of Jeremiah. So I'm belonging to a faith community that is uh, often belonging kind of more to the evangelical circles, more conservative, high view of scripture type of approach. I, um, th- that's why I would place myself in. And so this is quite a different <laughs> approach to the text. And I was asked by the University of Minster to, to you know, write a review on this. That's why I was reading it. But it does ch- it did challenge me. You know, in good, se- it, it good, in good ways, it allowed me to see things in the text that I just couldn't see without such mm. a queer theologian uh, taking off my glasses, uh, so to say. I don't agree necessarily with her conclusions and with some of the ways how she's rendering the text. But there is something in the text that I haven't seen, for example, the mm. uh, demasculization of Jeremiah who is not allowed to to marry, who is not allowed to have kids, who is not uh, allowed to have property, uh, who is not allowed to have a social state uh, in in society, I mean, th- these are all necess- necessary items for a patriarch to be a, a patriarch, to be a man, um, and how that influences then your own self perception, your own role, how to participate in a society where you're not considered to be actually a real man. So these things, I you know, I haven't, I just haven't seen.
0: Yeah, you know? yeah, it's interesting. I also remember listening to, I think it was a lecture where there was a colonial reading or post colonial readings, not colon- colonial, post colonial reading of Job, and the first thing this presenter started questioning, like why why is Job so rich? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. (laughs) Right? Totally deconstructing and questioning this idea of him being a righteous man. And what I realized, I think what you want to say when we expose ourselves to these kind of readings, it is not necessarily now that our interpretation is shaken or that we consider them as being truthful or or correct in in all facets, but that they make us aware of just how many assumptions we bring to the text. That we have never ourselves interrogated and put into
1: yeah. question. Is, yeah. is that a
0: good way to understand? Yeah, what beautiful.
1: You're saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah beautiful. Yeah. I mean, for me, this is one way, right, to expose yourself to other readings of the text. So another way, and mm-hmm. that's why I'm doing, you know, this linguistic research that that I love, running for valence patterns, patternization of of text, mm-hmm. because they also kind of objectify the text and they make you see things that you just weren't able to see. To 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 give you an example, in the Book of Ruth. In chapter one, you know, Ruth gets stripped off her husband, her sons her properties and, and she returns kind of this bitter lady and then she has this at the end of the of chapter one she makes the statement that is rendered in most english translations as don't call me noomi which means the well-tasting one the tasteful one call me bitter for the lord you know let me go full but let me return empty and he answered me so all of a sudden that's how many rendered in the english or even german translations and he answered me so It seems like, okay, and he answered me, oh, so God is somebody in all the trauma you're going through, he does answer your prayers and that's why you're back now in Bethlehem. That's how you could read it. But when you do a valence analysis using computer tools, you realize, man, this... Um, this construct that is being used in the Hebrew cannot trigger the meaning answer. It actually must trigger the meaning humiliate or rape. So the, 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 this, this construct is used elsewhere in, in the Bible for, to, to trigger these types of meanings. So what it says, the Lord has left left me full, or I, I left full, right? And he ripped everything away from me and he raped me. That's why you have to call me bitter. It, made, it makes more sense also in the context because she hmm. in, he... Right. Fr- yeah, you know, portrays herself as this highly disadvantaged person. Um <laughs> uh, or you know in kings you have this phrase where elijah you know this this boy of the widow of zarephath uh, dies and then he prays to the heavens and asking the lord to have the soul of this boy return basically have this boy become alive again and then it says in the translations and the lord listened or the lord um how do you say um, responded to the prayer of elijah well if you do these computer ana- analysis uh, the, the computer will say well the the phrase that is used here is a pattern that always triggers the meaning to obey. So basically, you have a text that says, and the Lord obeyed Elijah. And then <laughs> you realize that actually there's already a problematic relationship between God and, and Elijah. Sometimes you wonder who is the one who sends the commands. Is Elijah the one who commands and God obeys? Is that how it should be? And then, of course, this. It opens a different reading of the text. Uh, and right. I, I think the, these moments are beautiful. That's why I'm tracing them. I always like to see. You okay. know, um, yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. So let's go. Let's see what's <clears throat> happening in Genesis 4. Yeah. So if you just read the text, I know you should never say that. But if you look at the text, you see the following. You have in verse 1 basically the idea that kind is present. Kind is present. And then verse 2, it says that now we have another one who is present, that is his brother Abel. The text is very explicit. It says brother Abel. No time information is given, no location information is given, no other context is being given. We don't even know how old Eve is, how old Adam is. Uh, we don't know anything about any other siblings' family structure. We don't know what language they spoke, what hobbies they had, and all this.
0: Nothing. Uh, do we Do we have, though, in Hebrew, do we have the word later she gave birth? Is that in Hebrew? Yes,
1: yeah, yeah. Okay,
0: so there's a s- sequential Exactly, idea there's
1: idea. a sequential idea, but the later is not uh, further... I'm de- uh, not further. Um, we qualified. don't know how much, yeah, right? Like, yes. Um, yeah. So basically, what you can say at this moment is this text is presented to us, or the story is presented to us in an archetypical way. What it means is every historical information that you could strip off is almost stripped off. You you could say uh, when you strip off historical information, then basically open a text to become a text that could be true to all kinds of. People. And that's what you mean when you say archetypical. Yeah. Archetypical. yeah. So okay. uh, usually historical texts are not archetypical because you have you know um, time information, place information. You have so many qualifications being added to participants that you cannot identify with them. Uh, they are so much different to you. So. But this is is one interesting move that we can take already here, namely that the text is not interested in specifying time, location, age, and personality, um, but (laughs) but it has a very reduced qualification of these figures. So then the second in verse 2 says that Abel is a keeper of sheep and Kine is a worker of the ground. There is no qualification being given. It's not said that keeping sheep is better than working the ground. And in fact, a shepherd and a farmer, these are the typical two vocations that you find in the ancient eastern world um, uh, there's equilibrium uh, between these two types of uh, vocations they mm-hmm. need each other and they rely on each other
0: so they never carry any symbolism of one being better than the no. other we see this in ancient near east yeah, right right
1: yeah. i mean we see this later right in the reception history we must we must find something why kind is bad so um
0: yeah but in the text and in the context of ancient near east That is not
1: here. So we just have person A and person B. They're doing, doing both good professions... There's nothing wrong with it. And then we move into verse 3, which I'm having here the ESV in front of me. It says, In the course of time, kind brought to the Lord an offering. So there's quite some discussion about what it means in the the course of time. But you can make a strong argument, and many scholars follow that, um, both conservative as well as, let's say, more historical critical uh, readers. They say it means at the end of the year. Uh, You have the same phrase that appears in the Bible a couple of times, uh, where it actually clearly means the end of the year, which would make sense here Namely, at the end of the year, which is always the end of the harvest. So, uh, the you know, the, they have agricultural calendars uh, in these times. So at the end of the harvest, at that moment, you bring offerings. Basically, you, it doesn't matter. You don't need to be an Israelite. You can be a Canaanite. You can be a Babylonian. You can be a Greek. You offer the gods. You, it's just a way of saying yeah. thanks to the Lord.
0: So in some way, at the very least, we can say that Cain has a sense of obligation or a sense of gratitude right. towards yes. the Lord. Yeah.
1: Yeah, right. yeah in fact okay. the word that is being used for offering is gift the gift would be a better word it's a it's a gift of okay. appreciation it appears many times in in the Old Testament it always has this kind of connotation of it's a gift an, an appraise, an appreciation of something of goodness that you must have received and here obviously it's it's the blessings of harvest or the the blessings of being able to do farming and being able to get fruits and crops out of uh, the ground. Yeah. Right, right. Um So again, till verse 3, nothing bad, right? Um Cain is actually acknowledging the goodness of the Lord and giving this um, present, this acknowledgement to the Lord. And then you have verse 4, and it says, And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. So what, what the text stresses is, and also, it means, Kind is not alone. Kind is not the only one who acknowledges the goodness of the Lord, so to say. There's also somebody else who does that, and that's Abel. Abel also does it. So we have two people who do. Bring minchas and the Hebrew will bring these gifts to to the Lord. And these appreciations.
0: Do you do you think uh, do you think Oliver that the fact that the text stresses that Abel brought the firstborn of his flock that this is fat portions that that is kind of a signal that he about the quality of
1: his offering or not? Yeah, you see. Um, there, scholars would would find you would find the scholars in different camps. So some would say okay. this is actually a qualification. This is actually a way by the narrator to set off Abel from Cain by saying Abel is better. He gives the best, right? Uh, and Cain does not. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. Others uh, would say, well. This is not a fair reading, because the before the firstborn is mentioned, actually it's stressed that also Abel brings, so it stresses the equality of their gifts mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so uh, you know you can take it this way or that way again, I think you cannot you cannot op- you cannot argue against. A reading that wants to stress that Abel does something better, but you cannot—you cannot falsify nor verify. Um, these are just two uh, two readings. I personally see the equality of them a little stronger um, as a potential, as a probable reading, because uh, later when God speaks to Cain, he doesn't say that you brought a not so good offering. So when. When, when the Lord speaks to Cain, he does not uh, bring up the quality difference between the offerings. So it seems that this is not the issue. The issue is not the mm. difference in offerings. At least this would have been the chance for the, the narrator to clarify to us what the problem is. Um, mm. And that doesn't seem to be the problem. Anyway, good. So then a, an important point now here is the end of verse 4 when it says, And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. I think this is a good good translation. Some say, and the Lord accepted Abel's offering. I'm not sure, you know, what what translation you're looking at now, but at least in some of the receptions of that story, it's like Cain's offer is rejected, Abel's offer is accepted. Uh, some in some ch- children' Bibles, right? You see this. Uh, you see these two altars, and then smoke goes up to the Lord. That is a sign of God accepted, and then on the altar of Cain, smoke does not uh, go up to the Lord. It kind of goes more in a in a horizontal way, which is a sign that it rejected. So nothing of this is present in the text. W- what the text says is that the lord gave attention to Abel's gift that's that's the only thing that we find there there's no and then five. But Cain, and for his offer, yeah, he did not give attention. It's the same word. So he gave attention to Abel, but he did not give attention to Cain. You have that word. It doesn't appear that many, uh, that, that often in, in the Bible. But it, I think it appears five, six times or so in the Bible. You find it in Job 2. Um, did you give attention, right? Uh, Satan, did you give attention to my servant, to my servant Job? Oh, no, no. Well, you should look at him. So, or Job himself will say, why does the Lord not give attention to me? and see my suffering. So the idea is not of rejection uh, or acceptance, but the idea is of being aware, acknowledging. uh, um, I mean, acknowledging in the sense of um, recognizing somebody, giving attention uh, to something. So until now, again, no judgment on the morality of Kain uh, nor nor Abel. So they both seem to do good things. You could argue that Abel does something better, right? Um, but uh, there is no argument given in the end of verse four that the Lord did give attention to Abel because his offering was better. Nor does it say in verse five he gave attention. It does not give attention to Cain because his sacrifice was worse. And I think that's the interesting part for me now in this text that we have this question: Why did? God give attention to Abel. Mm-mm.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because if you look at the text, you could say, well, no, it could have it could have been the case that the Lord says, but he favored Abel's offering more. There's kind of a gradation, but here you have such a strong contrast. He did not look with Favor, yeah. right? It was it was this very stark. It's not a. Hey, this is a little bit better than this. No, 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 no. Abel is great. This he the Lord is not accepting it. Is that what the text no, says? No, that's
1: actually what the text does not say. That, that that's what what what, okay. what what I would argue. The the term that's being used is not a term for acceptance or. Or rejection. The term is the term means attention. He gave attention to Abel, but he did not give attention to Cain.
0: So when my, when the NIV says that, uh, but on Cain in his offering he did not look with favor. Yeah. That would not be a good that, rendering. Exactly.
1: That's already uh, that informs. That's already informed by tradition, by the tradition of kind is bad and abel is good. So, okay. it, uh, purely the word Sha'a that, that's being used here in in the Hebrew does not have any connotation uh, regarding acceptance or rejection. So, and and you find in all the cases when when you look at in, in the in, in the text, it's it's pretty clear. It's like uh, like in Job the cases that I gave. Lord, why do you not? Give attention to me. Why do you not recognize me? Why do you not see me in my, you know, in my, in my traumas or in my, in my, in my dilemmas? It's not, it doesn't mean, why do you not reject me? Am I, the idea is like, hey, I'm screaming so loud. Can, don't, don't you see me? Um, th- That's the meaning of the word.
0: But wouldn't you, wouldn't you say that a failure or the absence of recognition implies a rejection? Because we can see that Cain perceives a great, grave act of injustice being committed on the side of of the Lord, right? He's—I don't know if it mm-hmm, says mm-hmm, in mm-hmm, Hebrew as mm-hmm, well—that he was very yeah, yeah, angry, yeah. and his face. So it's not just—he's a little bit upset. He really perceives some grave injustice being committed. Yes. So how do you then? Square that. So
1: I think the injustice, if if you just take the text, so to say, I mean, it's an experiment, right? But if you just take the text, the injustice that Cain feels is not that his sacrifice got rejected, but that even though he gave such a good sacrifice, you know, he didn't do anything wrong, that the Lord just doesn't give attention to him. And I think this is where the text becomes also a fruitful, uh, at least a fruitful reading is, is now being opened Because it, you have these, what I'm seeing here now, when we take this type of reading, I'm seeing a kind and an able. They do their best. They're hardworking. You know, the one is a farmer and, and you know tilts the the soil. Able is a hardworking. You could even argue that kind's work is even harder, right? Um, uh, than than shepherding only, but. They are hardworking people and both give acknowledgement to the goodness of the Lord. They both give a gift. And then one feels not seen. One feels not, uh, re- uh, somebody does not re- uh, receive the attention that he thinks he should receive. I think that's the moment where interesting psychological things happen in, in humanity. Again, from an archetypal perspective, if, if this is a text told in a way that it can address all of us, namely that many of us work hard. And we just don't get the recognition that we think we should receive.
0: But you see, perhaps Oliver, some would push back because now this raises profound and deep theological questions, right? Because it starts to ascribe to God motives that seem to be morally problematic. Because in the Bible, right, the God is often referred as a just God, mm-hmm. God who loves justice and all of that. And one definition, the most basic definition of justice is to give another what is his or her due. Right. Yeah. So if you are saying that God is not giving what Cain is due by his very act of generous offering, now this now raises a problematic question of how we understand the character and justice of yes. God. Does it not? Yes,
1: absolutely. And and you see this or you could if you read it this way, you could see exactly that question raising in the mind of Cain. This is unjust. It's not fair what God is doing. And I think this is what in this reading the text can open up namely how do you relate to life experiences that seem to be unfair that seem to be unjustly unfair the the you know disadvantages that you have received in life how do you deal with that uh, and this text, if this is the intention of the text, and I would argue this is one of the possible readings of the text, this text does not answer the question why God is putting this apparent injustice or this this experience on, on kind because that's the situation that we often find ourselves in. We just don't know why the things have happened to us in the way they did. I, I You know, two days ago, my mom called me. She was crying, said, her most favorite cousin died. It's my, mm, uh, I'm sorry, I mean my my favorite uh, cousin. So, uh, uh, sorry, my cousin, yeah. her favorite nephew. So uh, he died. He was walking in the in the forest with his wife and dropped dead. The, the heart. So he's your first cousin. Yes, and uh, yeah, mm. heart failure just dropped dead. I'm sorry so. for your loss, Oliver. I yeah. So the question is why, right? And this this has been one of the best cousins I have. So Doing well to his mother, taking care of the family. There were some tragic mm-hmm. events happening in his family, and he superbly invested himself into um, solving problems and, and taking care of the ones suffering. And there he's dead. And this is just unfair. What do you do in these situations? And I think this mm-hmm. is this is what this text can now bring up. Kain, what are you doing now? Kain, you have worked hard you have not done, done anything wrong you have brought your gift religiously there's nothing that we can bring against you even the text himself itself does not say that there was something he did wrong at this stage Right? the Lord does not say I rejected your sacrifice the Lord just says hey why are you angry that, that, that's the only question and what do you do with your anger, anger? so in the Hebrew actually it's like why, yeah, why are you angry that's a good translation and why is your face down so you're looking down you're mm-hmm. not seeing mm-hmm. the other anymore mm-hmm. you're not seeing the world anymore you're just seeing yourself That's kind of what this... Mm -hmm.
0: Okay, so let me see if I understand you, Oliver. So a typical traditional interpretation of of this text is to read it as a historical event where we try to now figure out there must be some reason Cain did something wrong and he did some action, his sacrifice was not the best one, or perhaps he was a farmer instead of he should have gone to Abel, bought a lamb perhaps, and then offered a Mm lamb, not just the fruit. So that's kind of a typical interpretation. What you're saying, no, 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 this is more like an arc. Archetype, right? This is more like speaking about a human condition. And the test that Cain is facing is the test that all of us are facing at some point in our lives. Are we going to be faithful to the Lord when there is no just dessert? When we don't. get what we deserve and, and we see someone else who is more blessed than we are and we think that we are more righteous. Almost kind of a Psalm 73 situation where he says that my feet almost slipped when I saw all the people who are mm-hmm, wicked, mm-hmm. they prosper mm-hmm. and what's with me and all of that. So you're saying that that was that the the text is questioning us would you be faithful to the Lord if something like that happened right, to
1: you right and where it seems that the Lord unjustly treats you would you still be faithful but, to the Lord
0: yeah it seems because we actually don't know what purposes God might have had right. we don't know if this is some, if this is some sort of a test right. because the language of test is prominent in in scriptures exactly yeah we don't know it Okay, so that is one possibility. Right. Okay. And now here's the question, though, Oliver. I think the problem, though, is that people would say, "Well, th- they are making a link, right? A link between Kane's reaction to this disfavor or whatever, mm-hmm, right, mm-hmm, or lack mm-hmm, of attention mm-hmm. or lack of recognition." Mm-hmm. We know, we know from contemporary studies how problem that the lack of recognition of misrecognition can profoundly damage yeah. people and human relations. But so people are drawing a link between that and his subsequent action. Mm -hmm. And they say, well, the the fact that he eventually ended up killing his brother tells us that this was a morally corrupt individual. Therefore, his assessment of God's action is also morally corrupt.
1: Yeah. You know, and I, I would say in some cases, in reality, that might be the case. But I think in many cases, if you interview murders. Their first murder was an impulse. So they—they, they, I mean, some of course plan and and they're very much aware what they want to do. But many of us became the majority of us became murders by—I don't want to say by accident, but by impulse. But crimes of yes. passion, yes. we're yeah. talking about. So, yeah. mm-hmm. I mean, and and if you speak to these people, you know, they they feel like, man, at the moment where this person died in my hands, at that moment, I wish I I would have. I, I I would be dead. I I I I didn't realize what what was happening. I, I don't, give me every punishment I deserve. I, I if I could just undo this. So, uh, and I think this is the way how you can read this is Cain is now trapped in a whole whirlwind of emotions if you've worked hard and you're just not receiving the recognition that you want there is a sense of injustice that happening and all of a sudden the way how you you cannot see the other anymore right that's like your face has fallen you you cannot you cannot see the needs and the and the happiness of others anymore you only see yourself uh, and at that moment where you're not able to lift your face and that's interesting i think what happens then in verse seven when the Lord speaks to him? the The Lord does not the Lord does not critique his emotion. The Lord does not say it's not good that you feel angry. the The Lord says, "So what are you going to do with this anger?" Th- that's the question.
0: But doesn't he ask him why are you angry? Isn't that an interrogation? Kind of, doesn't he interrogate him here? Yeah, he, do, he does. His he does.
1: Uh, yeah, and, and that's also, you know, an interesting thing that the Lord introduces himself in the first couple of chapters uh, of Genesis, often as the one who is inter- interrogating. Where are you? What happened? Mm-hmm. No, um, explain me. Mm-hmm. So uh, he, he obviously tries to engage Cain in a conversation, uh, asking a question would Hope for an answer, which never comes. Right? Kind does not engage in a conversation with, with, with God. Why are you angry? And why has your fo- face fallen down? Why are you depressed? So, w- what's happening? Explain me. So, yes, the interrogation is there. But there's in that interrogation, we do not necessarily have to now imply that there's a judgment over kind's emotion.
0: But wouldn't wouldn't verse seven actually be a kind of a judgment? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? Yeah. But if you do, you, and but are you perhaps suggesting that those questions? Because it seems, I mean, this can be read as just general questions, yeah. right? Will you not be accepted if you do what is right? But it's very hard to read or not to read this in light of what just transpired. Yeah. It's very difficult to read verse seven without having verse five in mind. Or mm-hmm. is there a different way of reading? Yeah, I uh, I, I think
1: the way I, I'm I'm having here the ESV. If you do well, you. Will you not be accepted? You see the word accepted, right? It's exception and rejection. That that terminology is again being triggered in the reader through this Bible translation. But nothing of that is actually in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, you have at the end of verse 6, it says, Why has your uh, face fallen? You have that. Mm -hmm. It actually is also rendered well in most English translations. Why has your face fallen? And then verse 7 is, is it not when you do good, it raises? That, that's the term. Uh, not be accepted. That's that's uh, again the tradition, the traditional understanding of this chapter, informing now the translation. the The Hebrew would say, "Is it not?" Literally, it would. "Is it not?" If you do well, it will raise. So, from f- the face falls, the face com- comes up again. So, will your head again be? upright so to say and the idea and that's that's what i would suggest Hmm. here the the idea here is the lord says you have this emotion um i want to engage you in a conversation why you have that emotion but regardless of why you have that emotion i want to challenge you i want to challenge you and say provide you with a principle and that principle is in the spite of you being feeling disadvantaged in the spite of you feeling not giving the proper uh, recognition continue doing good because only when you continue doing good your face will lift up again
0: i mean this is a pro- this is a really a i don't know if the, if the word is radical but this is really a significant rereading of the text because it is quite different right if you read if you do what is right will you not be accepted right. yeah. But you're saying that's not there at all. So we're not talking about acceptance and rejection, right? We are talking about what you're saying. We are talking about God dealing with his emotions. And if you do what is right, will not your face cease being downcast? Exactly. Will it not r- right. rise, yep. right? Will you not feel
1: differently? Yep. So he tries to, okay. So you have, yep. and again here, the computer yep. would help you. Uh, um, you have two availances. That means basically two ways of... Two- grammatical constructions that trigger uh, particular meanings. In the Hebrew, you can have a fallen face, which basically is a term for being depressed. Uh, You know, you look Mm -hmm. down Mm -hmm. and you have a a lifted up face, which means you look straight into the world. You see others again. Uh, so to say. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And and this terminology is being used here. So you have a fallen down face, or you have a lift up face. And the, the interesting thing is, at least if you read it this way, is that the Lord says net, not, you should ask for forgiveness and you should repent and then your face will be good again. The, the solution is, and you could argue because Kind didn't do anything wrong, Kind's attitude towards the sense of rejection or the sense of not receiving this proper attention that he thinks he should receive should be move on and do well, act well. That's that's my recipe for you. I I cannot give you the recipe ask for forgiveness because you didn't do anything wrong. And I'm also not saying that you have to now change your emotions because your emotion is a natural response to the disadvantaging that, that you feel. So therefore, the solution is not in the ritual system of repentance so to say the solution is in your attitude towards the world perhaps this is a link to the stoic <laughs> you know mm-hmm. uh, introduction that, that that we had move on and do well that's the only recipe um that uh, that will bring again cheers to your face
0: but obviously Keane does not listen right. to this and now he commits this yep. egregious horrible yep. act now is there any way for you or to reread this event, or do you do you agree that this is what This happened? is what
1: happens. Yeah. There's no other way to read this in the Hebrew as as it's pretty well portrayed here in the translation. It's not
0: too. metaphorical. It's no. not he killed him in a sense, he rejected no. him. It's actually it's murder. Actual, murder. Yeah, actual murder.
1: Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. So in the context of uh, as, as we, you know, as, as I'm trying to develop this text now until verse seven, I would I would say what the Hebrew text tries to, or the original version of the text tries to open up as a potential reading is what happens if you feel not treated well? At the moment where you have that feeling of not being treated well, you, there's in everybody, there's a potential murder. In everybody, there is a potential you know, criminal. And here we see Kain becoming a criminal. Um, yeah.
0: Would you say that part of this emotion that Cain is experiencing, it's not simply anger, but what later, obviously, Nietzsche, Girard and others would talk about, and, and Max Scheller would talk about, ressentiment. Right, this this feeling of being slighted, but you say it's not a feeling of being. Slighted. Do you, okay. Let me ask mm-hmm. you this: Do you think that Cain has a feeling
1: of being slighted? I think at this stage, the what is what is he feel? What is he angry about? Th- that's an interesting thing, you know. In the Hebrew, it does not qualify even the emotion. It just says that you could say there's a whirlwind of emotions going on in him. It could be uh, injustice. It could be feeling angry. It could be feeling jealous it could be feeling um, senseless Um, i'm working so hard i'm not getting anything for it Uh, why is my you know this whirlwind of emotions the text does not specify what exactly the quality of that emotion is and i think that's part of the script of the narrator um that he tells you at the moment where people feel not giving uh, not receiving the proper attention they they find themselves in a whirlwind of emotions right and so and you would say that this is
0: coming but you would still you will i I suppose you would say that this does not come from the act of god right you would not ascribe injustice to god but you would say that cain is interpreting it as an unjust act
1: i mean obviously whereas
0: god could have had other intentions that he may not have revealed to cain yeah he obviously Obviously, he's reading it in such a fashion. Exactly, right? that exactly a yeah, that,
1: that definitely I would see that. Obviously, the narrator, as he continues writing, has a very clear understanding of the justice of God. God does not do things wrong. Um, he, he's, he's righteous and he's omniscient and, and, and so on. Um, so, so the blame is on Cain, uh, but kind is being revealed to us in a, I would say, in a very hmm, approachable way. Namely, Cain is not by nature evil. Cain experiences something that he interprets with a negative theology. Uh, might it be, and then acts up on that, um, mm-hmm, and that's mm-hmm. that's his downfall.
0: Okay. So let me see if, as we are slowly coming to an end here, trying to wrap this up, let me see if I understood correctly what you were trying to argue. For one, I believe you would agree with this idea that the text, even though it opens up a plurality interpretations, it is not a free for all, right? The text puts constraints on what we can say. So someone like, even someone like a postmodern, it's not a good term to use it for him, but someone like a postmodern thinker like Umberto Eco, when he writes the book, The Limits of Interpretation, Mm -hmm. he tells us, right, that text Provides yeah. limits. It, it's just not. It's not a free right. for all, right? But within those boundaries, right? Within these very broad boundaries, there are multiple ways in which this could be read. Oh. So what you have presented this rereading of cain and rereading of these offerings that these are legitimate interpretations based on the constraints that the text imposes on us exactly it might it might or might not be correct right. but if one were to subscribe to such an interpretation there would be a linguistic a textual exactly. warrant to do exactly so.
1: Yeah, th- perfect. Right. Yeah.
0: And th- and then the second what I what I'm saying is that one way in which we can allow the text to speak to us is to become mindful of suppressed emotions. Mm-hmm. Emotions that we are, you know, Cain is not naming them. So God is in a way naming these emotions for him mm-hmm. and helping process the interiority trying to bring it to the surface. And inviting him to come to a proper self-knowledge so that he can commit to a just action. To a just action in the world when a lot of things around us seem unjust, generating a lot of these negative emotions and interpretations. Would that be a way to perhaps
1: take the text? Excellent. Yes. Uh, I I can only stress, reading a text as an exegete or as any human person, actually, listen to the text. Be guided by the text. Don't allow your bias to abuse the text. So the, the text, in our case, you know, the author is dead. So even more, you need to protect the author by doing justice to the text. Uh, look at the boundaries of the text. Don't, don't just read too much in, into it. Rather keep it ambiguous than uh, arguing for the truth, right? Um, yeah. Exactly.
0: So sometimes then when we talk, we have to find the meaning of the text. What we actually mean by that, what we should mean is that we are actually talking about be faithful to the boundaries right. of the text. And the boundaries put constraint, but also allow for various, you know, it's underdetermined. There are possible ways of dealing with that. And one way in which you honor the text. In which you submit yourself under the text is to recognize this multiplicity of possibilities would that yep. be a one way yep. of exactly
1: and i think what this exercise in this particular case shows us also is how receptions of this text demonstrate how people struggle with the fact that the text is too open to their own wishes so they they, they hmm. want to have kind bad from the start get on so and then they have to invent background stories right uh, like actually he is the son of of eve and and the serpent or <laughs> or uh yeah he did the wrong sacrifice because it was the 14th of nisan um so you need to invent these in order to create clarity of interpretation and i think yeah. that that's unfortunate because right the the reading that is also possible allows us for a very different self reflection um yeah, yeah. And
0: we have this later on throughout the Bible, right, later on when we come to the Gospels, you know, this idea, oh, you know, the brothers of, I don't know, Jesus must have been from a previous marriage, you know, all of these because Mary could not possibly, you know, we have all of these different uh, interpretations yeah, yeah. as all of that later on. But I think what you're inviting us, if I can conclude here, if we can conclude, is it really reminding me of something, Oliver, of something that you said when we had our live recording on the Bible and the meaning of the Bible for contemporary or our contemporary age. And we talked about at the end, you might recall, about certain examples or certain suggestions, like how can people become more acquainted with the Bible? And one thing that you said, well, just come together in a group and open Mm -hmm. the text and try to, not that we are some sort of model here, but, but perhaps what we have done, the two of us, do this in the group week in and week out bracket as much as you can these assumptions Then you can never perfectly bracket them out but try to bracket it because the text deserves at least the attempt at bracketing and letting the text speak yeah. to us and would that be a good way did you what you actually would suggest yeah, and i think
1: i have experiences now with you because you are constantly forcing me to bracket Right? Because you're asking these questions. Hey, wait, wait, can you see can you read it that way? Is that justified? What's with the next verse? Or what's with so I I cleanse myself, I purify myself and my reading, so to say, in your presence. And I think this is such a wonderful experience for the community of faith, for a community of Bible readers. This purification is is really for me is like standing in front of a mirror, you know, and making myself beautiful. So And that's Mm. purification, Mm. not purification in a moralistic sense, like get the defilements of me off, but more like, Hey, I I want to, I want to look beautiful and I can only Mm. do this in your presence on the presence of, of a community that constantly takes off some of perhaps the, uh, you know, the uh, imperfections that are in my face.
0: Oliver, what a beautiful conclusion. Thank you so much for enriching my understanding of the text. Uh, let, I hope we will have some more. I would like to have some more of these dialogues. We can pick up some, some other story perhaps in the future and go through it again. I, I am sure that our audience will enjoy that. So hopefully we can do this again.
1: Thank you for the purification here. Okay,
0: Oliver, all the best. Till soon.